What's up, people? This is Jose Nino again, and I'm here with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have on Keith Preston. Keith is the author of several books, which include Attack the System, A New Anarchist Perspective for the 21st Century. He's also a self-described anarcho-pluralist. How are you today, Keith? Hello, Jose. Thank you for having me on. All right. So... You're a self-described anarcho-pluralist. Can you detail what that means and how you reached that ideological point? Sure. Way back about 35 years ago, I started becoming interested in political philosophy and looking at all the different approaches to political philosophy, I decided I was an anarchist. And for about the first five years or so, I was pretty much a standard left-wing type of anarchist. I was really big into Noam Chomsky and people like that. Then I started flirting with anarcho-capitalism for a little while. And then I started moving towards a perspective that was somewhat more, I guess, eclectic would be the word. Along the way, I noticed that there were about as many different schools of anarchism as there are other ideologies and political philosophies put together. And I also noticed there are hybrids of anarchism and all the other political ideologies as well, which is also interesting. But I thought that it might be interesting to try to create some kind of project that was an umbrella for these, where you could have some sort of engagement with all of these different philosophies. So I called the term anarcho-pluralism called the concept of narco-pluralism. That was the term I developed. That term is not original to me. I actually got it from a guy named Sam Dolgoff. I met him in New York City back in the late 1980s. At the time, he was already in his 90s. He's long since deceased. But he was a veteran of the classical anarchist movement from the early 20th century, He had been personally acquainted with Emma Goldman and and well-known anarchists from that time period. But one time I remember asking Sam what he was, you know, like there's so many different hyphenated forms of anarchism. There's anarcho-syndicalism, anarcho-communism, anarcho-capitalism, all of those things. And he said he was an an anarcho-pluralist in the sense he was for a plurality of different types of anarchism. And while I don't know that he would necessarily agree with the approach that I have today, my guess is he'd probably disagree with certain aspects of it. But I've always thought that was an interesting term. So it's more or less the term that I've kept even today. And I also use it interchangeably with some other terms like anarcho-ecumenicalism or or pan-anarchism. But that's the idea in a nutshell. Yeah, that's pretty intriguing because when you hear people talk about anarchism, there's like the stereotypical image of a bomb-throwing insurrectionist, if you will, that comes to mind. And to me, that's pretty simplistic, regardless of whether you hold anarchist views or not. And many people tend to view you as like a current-day doyen of anarchist thought. Could you break down for my listeners, the principal schools of anarchism? Well, there's quite a few of those. I guess that if you wanted the basic overview, the first person to ever call himself an anarchist 
formally was a French economist about 200 years ago named Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. And before that, you had other thinkers that were essentially anarchists in everything but name. Many people believe that William Godwin, who was the late 18th century English philosopher, he's probably most well known for being the father of Mary Godwin Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, and the father-in-law of the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley. He was also the husband of Mary Wollstonecraft. But Godwin's philosophy was essentially anarchist, although he didn't really call it that, but he was within the English liberal tradition. There's also Max Stirner, who was a German philosopher in the early 19th century, who had a philosophy called egoism that was essentially anarchistic. But uh, Proudhon was the first person to use the, the term. Anarchism began to develop as a movement in the 19th century. There was a large anarchist movement that was sort of uh, the extreme wing of the international labor movement. And that was in turn divided into a lot of different sectarian groups. You had what were called anarcho-communists who envisioned a world, a future world of communes. You had collectivist anarchists, mutualists. Mutualists believe in things like cooperative banking and worker co-ops and that kind of stuff. You had anarcho-syndicalists. They believe in federations of labor unions that are democratically managed internally. You also had individualist anarchists. Those are anarchists who believe in just a total laissez-faire economy, you know, without any kind of government or state. You had what's called Christian anarchism. That was a philosophy developed in part by Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer, that's very oriented towards pacifism and non-resistance. As far as the official schools, those were the the major ones at the time. There are many philosophies that you could consider to be prototypes for anarchism that extend all the way back to antiquity. You could argue that some elements of ancient Chinese philosophy like Taoism or, or certain types of Buddhism are anarchistic. Certain schools of Greek philosophy like the Stoics or the Cynics, there's elements, of it. there's anarchistic elements within that. Certainly in some of the millenarian Christian medieval movements, you find elements of anarchistic thought. You can find similar ideas within the other religions as well, Islam and Judaism and some others. In some of the early modern thinkers, you find prototypical anarchists. And then there have been more types of anarchism that have evolved since the 19th and early 20th century as well. You have anarcho-capitalism that Murray Rothbard and thinkers like that developed. You have situationist anarchism that came out of the French intellectual culture of the 60s. You have an anarchist feminism or anarcho-feminism, as they call it. You have a lot of different types of anarchism that fit with different types of identity groups. You have black anarchism or gay anarchism and, and things like that. You also have... Uh, anarchism that is fused with environmentalism or some sort of critique of technology, like anarcho-primitivism, for example. You have forms of anarchism that are interested in pro-tech views like transhumanism. You, there, you have anarchist transhumanists. You also have anarchists 
of the right, like anarchists who have a lot of more right-wing or conservative type views, but they mix it with localism, decentralism, anti-statism, anti-authoritarianism, things like that. So there are really many different schools of anarchism. And like I said earlier, there's about as many schools of anarchism as there are other philosophies put together. And you also have hybrids of anarchism and other philosophies. You know, there are people who call themselves anarcho-monarchists or anarcho-conservatives and things like that. But as far as most anarchists go, I think you would find the two largest factions would be the leftist socialist types of anarchists and all the different subsets of that, and then the libertarian anarcho-capitalist, and then the different subdivisions of that. Which school of anarchist thought are you most partial to, or better yet, schools of anarchist thought are you most partial to? I've been asked that quite a few times. I think that many of them bring different things to the table that are of value. There are some that I find more interesting than others. I probably share the emphasis on individualism that you find in individualist anarchism and in certain types of libertarian or anarcho-capitalist thought. Now, I'm very big on, say, individual freedom of association, individual autonomy, that kind of thing. I am probably more critical of capitalism than anarcho-capitalists typically are, so I'm somewhat more left-leaning on that. I'm at least partially sympathetic to the anarcho-syndicalists, the mutualists, the anarcho-communists to some degree. I, I have certain doubts about how practical some of their views are, depending on what type of anarcho-communist you're dealing with. So I'm a little bit leftier than the anarcho-capitalist on economics. I'm also not one that is inclined towards moral crusading or universalism. So I tend to favor a type of anarchism that is more about localized enclaves, localized enclaves reflecting different lifestyle interests and cultural interests and that kind of thing, as opposed to trying to come up with one universal model for everyone. A good good way to explain it, I think, is I found that people are able to understand this by using this analogy. If you compare anarchist philosophies to different types of Christianity. You have something like pan-anarchism or anarcho-pluralism, which is what I am. That would be like ecumenical interfaith types of Christianity, like the World Council of Churches or like the Unitarian Universalists. Whereas you have more sectarian forms of anarchism that are prone to schisms, like Protestants. And then you also have different types of anarchism that have a universalist philosophy, but emphasize local autonomy at the same time. Anarcho-capitalists are like that. And that's kind of what Catholicism is in the realm of, of religion. And also you have types of anarchism that are both decentralist and localist and anti-statist, but also culturally conservative, what might be called anarchism of the right. I guess you could compare that to Eastern Christianity or something. And then you have pacifist anarchism. I guess you could say that's like Quakerism. And you have terrorist anarchism, which I guess is kind of like the Islamists or something like that. And you have vegan anarchism, which I guess would be like the Seventh-day Adventist or one of the vegetarian religions. You know, So I'm, I have a very open-ended ecumenical viewpoint there are some things I'm more sympathetic to than others. I'm 
generally share the individualism of the anarcho-capitalist and individualist anarchists, the egoists, some of those types of anarchists. I'm a little bit more anti-capitalist than they are, a little leftier on economics. But I'm also critical of this politically correct stuff that we see, wokeism and all the stuff that we see nowadays. So I'm probably, I wouldn't say conservative, I'm more of just I'm more individualistic or egoistic than, say, the moral crusader types of anarchists. Geographically speaking, where would you say anarchism is most popular or politically active in? Like which countries in particular? Today, let's see, Greece would be one. I think probably Greece Let's see, Spain, to some degree, has a lengthy anarchist tradition. There's a lot of movements in Mexico and in Latin America that are de facto anarchists. Some of them call themselves that, some don't, but they might as well be. There's been a growth of quasi-anarchist movements in the Kurdish territories in recent years. You have anarchist movements that are active in various African countries. You have them in... uh, some of the South Asian countries, like in Malaysia and places like that, a lot of places that people wouldn't suspect. And of course, you have them in North America, in Europe. I would guess that probably the most active anarchist movement and influential in terms of being able to exercise influence on the wider society is probably Greece these days. That would be my best guess. Hmm, that's... Pretty intriguing. Now, I think the past decade or so has witnessed some weird political dynamics go into effect because, after all, we were pretty well aware that politics tends to create strange bedfellows, and especially during the Trump era. And you saw all manner of like leftists, progressives, social democrats, and even some anarchists make common cause with generic neoliberals. Are there any schools of anarchism in particular that have a historical tendency of gravitating towards the political mainstream and forming alliances of convenience with mainstream political parties? Yeah, that's been true as long as there have been modern anarchists. You've always had anarchists that would end up getting I would say, co-opted by things like social democracy, even communism. Back in the early 20th century, when the Russian Revolution happened, you had a lot of leftists who thought, well, okay, the Russians are a model of revolution. And you had a lot of people in the West, I think rather naively and foolishly, jumping on, on that bandwagon. And I think even more pervasive has been the co-optation of anarchism by social democracy, the person who probably most epitomizes that is Noam Chomsky. You know, I'm someone who definitely admires Noam Chomsky. I think that he's basically the Bertrand Russell of, of my generation. But at the same time, he's the leading public figure associated with left-wing anarchism and has been for decades. And unfortunately, he's given a lot of people the idea that anarchism is basically just the Democratic Party plus some vague quasi-anarchistic sentiments. And I think that's actually been a net negative for anarchism. But that is very, very common. You see a whole lot of people who end up becoming essentially social Democrats 
who claim to be anarchists. Now, you see that among other anarchist factions as well. There are a lot of anarcho-capitalists, for example, who are really just Republicans under another name because all they care about are the standard issues that Republicans tend to care about, you know, taxes or guns or something like that. And that's true of some of the anarchists of the right. I know some of those personally who basically became Trumpists once Trump became a, a phenomena. So you have this tendency among all anarchists to get co-opted by whatever kind of mainstream movements or whatever they most sympathize with or most identify with. A problem with a lot of the hyphenated types of anarchists is that they, they do put more emphasis on the hyphen than the anarchism part. For example, if they're anarcho-feminists, then they really care more about the feminist part than the anarchism part. Or they, if they're anarcho-capitalists, they care more about the capitalism part than the anarchism part. So that's almost a universal tendency among anarchists, except you, then you also have types of anarchists that have developed for the purpose of criticizing that. And, and you have anarchists without adjectives, anarchists without hyphens, synthesis anarchists, although they end up becoming just another type of sect of anarchists. So it's uh, something of a circle anarchists keep going in. Yeah, on that point that you mentioned about these anarcho-rightists that go the Trump route, who would you say are the most prominent of those types of anarchists in terms of like individual figures or organizations? Well, you had some anarcho-capitalists that went in that direction. You know, Stefan Molyneux would be a well-known example, I guess. At one point, he was probably the most well-known anarcho-capitalist, and he went in sort of a Trumpist direction. We had... Uh, group here in the United States called the National Anarchist Tribal Alliance. This was a group in New York of national anarchists. And national anarchists and anarcho-capitalists are not entirely the same thing. In fact, there's a lot of important differences between them. But some of the people associated with the National Anarchist Tribal Alliance also went out of Trumpist direction. In fact, I think some of them were involved in the J6 incident. Not to single them out. I mean, you find this issue all over the place with different types of anarchists. So it's not unique to any one faction. What is the principal difference between national anarchists and anarcho-capitalists? Because that's actually pretty interesting. I've never really thought about that. Well, anarcho-capitalism is a form of classical liberalism. It's a, a radical classical liberalism that advocates a laissez-faire approach to economics with an emphasis on individualism and markets and that kind of stuff. National anarchism is closer to being a leftist version of anarchism in the sense that it's actually much more critical of capitalism and markets and merchant culture and that kind of stuff than uh, anarcho-capitalist would be. However, national anarchism has a greater emphasis on ecology and things like that. It also tends to have a greater emphasis on ethnicity, preserving indigenous cultures and, and traditional cultures against the kind of homogeneity that you typically find in modern culture. For example, when we look at the impact of American cultural imperialism around the world, we see that and this has actually been borne out by sociological research. We see that McDonald's Golden Arches symbol is the most widely recognized symbol around the world. Like more people around the world in a survey 
will recognize McDonald's golden arches as opposed to the symbols of the major religions like the Christian cross, the Islamic crescent, the Jewish star of David. So national anarchists would be more critical of that. Uh, National anarchists would say, look, you know, we don't want to have mech world of the type that Tom Friedman dreamed about. You know, we don't want to have a global monoculture that's just about McDonald's and Netflix and Hollywood and that kind of stuff. You know, we want to preserve traditional cultures. We also want a diversity of cultures. So national anarchism places a much greater emphasis on those kinds of ideas and is influenced somewhat by elements of the European right that have ideas along those lines, figures like, say, Alain de Benoit from the French New Right. So national anarchism is more in that vein. It's sort of a you know, leftist or quasi-leftist critique of capitalism and the state, you know, just like leftist anarchism, but also with this kind of almost anti-modernist cultural outlook. So would you say that national anarchists would be more likely to pact with national populists and right-wing populists than their anarcho-capitalist counterparts? Well, I've seen both anarcho-capitalist and national anarchists go in that direction, which I think is interesting. I know anarcho-capitalists and national anarchists who more or less gone in that kind of direction. I also know anarchists both anarcho-capitalist and national anarchists who are critical of that as well. Yeah, I don't know that one is really more inclined towards that than the other. Both of them frequently see the left, or at least a lot lot of people who are sympathetic to anarcho-capitalism or to national anarchism tend to see the left as a greater enemy than the right. So it always gets back to that lesser evil paradigm, just like a lot of the more leftist socialist types of anarchists, they tend to see the right as a greater enemy. So they always fall back on, you know, voting for left-wing parties or liberal parties and things like that. It's pretty fascinating to see how these schools of thought interact with the broader political ecosystem on a mainstream basis. Now, I kind of want to shift gears a bit to the like U.S. politics now and how it's definitely changing in terms of the electoral coalitions that we see because, and I'd say this is actually not even exclusive to the U.S., but rather a universal trend more or less in the West where you're seeing the working class shift to the ostensive right and then this hyper gentrification take place within like the Democratic Party and it's similar social democratic counterparts across the West. I tend to actually be more curious about the former, the right-wing populists, especially against the backdrop of national populism and this emerging new right, if you will. How do you think this national populist movement will perform in terms of cultural and political impact? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. If you're interested in this topic, the best scholarly work on this that I know of was published by Thomas Piketty, who was a French economist. He's on the left. He's actually on the left. But he published a work about a year ago where he examined electoral patterns in 21 Western countries. He and his associates did. 
And what they found was that in virtually every country they looked at, there were a couple that were where there were some gray area, Portugal and Ireland. But for the most part, in every Western country that they looked at, there is this interesting phenomena going on where you have the right becoming the party of the merchant class and the left becoming the party of what they call the Brahmin class. And then you have the more working class moving towards the populist right. You also have a a social democratic left that is in some ways more moderate than the Brahmin left. And to break that down a little bit further, Piketty uses an analogy to the Hindu caste system. In India, they have the four basic varnas, they call it, the major castes, which are you have the Brahmins, which tend to be the priests and scholars and you know what we would call intellectuals and academics and that kind of stuff. And then you have the administrative class, which is another group. And then you have the merchants like business people, and then you have the workers. And of course, on the very bottom, you have the Dalits, the the non-caste people, the untouchables. But Piketty uses an analogy to the caste system. He said it's kind of like in the West today, people who would be in the Brahmin caste, the Western equivalent of that, that is the scholars, the intellectuals, the journalists, the people in the creative professions, the ideas generating industries, That could be all kinds of things. That could be advertising, media, entertainment, law, human resources, you know, you name it. All of those kinds of people tend to be migrating further leftward, whereas the traditional working class tends to be migrating towards the populist right, along with the traditional merchant class. In the United States, for instance, if you look at who votes Republican, there's There's the traditional business class, that is your, you know, the kind of people who live in exurban areas outside major cities and own plumbing companies and stuff like that. You know, these are people who are mostly worried about taxes and business regulation, or they perhaps have a job, a white collar job working for in the private sector as an accountant or something like that. Or they tend to be blue-collar workers, that is, relatively high-skilled workers, or they tend to be perhaps from the traditional working class, but are experiencing downward mobility due to plant closures and layoffs and that kind of stuff. You know, that tends to be the right nowadays. It's sort of like this hybrid of the merchant class or the business class and then the, the working class, you know, with the working class being a little further rightward, more in the populist right whereas the business class tends to be more center-right. And then on the left, you have this Brahmin class I was describing earlier that's concentrated in all of the ideas industries. And these tend to be relatively elite, relatively privileged people. Like, for example, there's a term called the professional managerial class that Barbara Ehrenreich coined some years ago to describe these people. That is, these people tend to be urban. They tend to be cosmopolitan in their cultural outlook. They tend to be very liberal in their cultural outlook. They tend to be, at the same time, upwardly mobile. They tend to be concentrated in the professions, in the creative industries and that kind of stuff. The tech industry, all that, you know, journalism, you know, education, the public sector, all of these kinds of things. 
So that is your far left sector now. That's where that tends to come from. Interestingly, the rank and file left, for example, rank and file Democratic voters tend to be to the right of that. They may not be as as right as the Republicans, but if you look at your rank and file Democratic voters, they tend to be in many ways more rightward, certainly on social questions, than a lot of the elites. They, uh, For instance, among the Democratic Party voting blocs, Black Americans are actually the most socially conservative. And even on race issues, research has shown that Black Americans on average have more moderate views on race than white liberals and white leftists do nowadays. And a lot of rank and file Democratic Party voters would be people that are more interested in more social democratic type policies. You know, they're concerned about the economy, housing costs, unemployment, health care, the kind of stuff that the traditional social democratic parties tended to be interested in. Whereas the more elite people on the left, this new Brahmin left, you know, in some of the other countries, they vote not only for the socialists, they'll actually vote with the Greens and, and further left groups like that. Australia is a good example. You know, in Australia, the business class votes for the center right, the working class votes for the populist right. The traditional left constituencies like unionized workers or done all that, they vote for the social democrats. And then the left votes for the, the liberal elites vote for the Greens. And that's a really interesting realignment of political parties and political factions. And this is going on all over the developed world. It's happening in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, in the oceanic countries like Australia, New Zealand, you know, everywhere in the, in the developed world, what used to be called the first world, that's what's happening. What policies and cultural trends have contributed to the development of this so-called realignment? There's a lot of things that feed into that. One, I think, has to do with changes that have taken place within capitalism itself and within technological development. To a large degree, I think it can be explained as a conflict between traditional industrial capitalism on one hand and this new digital capitalism that's been made possible by the information age and the digital revolution and, and, and the tech industry and all of that. You know, just like in past times, like back in the 18th and 19th century, in Europe, you had conflicts between the old elite, which was the aristocracy that was rooted in an agricultural economy, the big landowners. They often were in conflict with the industrial elite, the bourgeoisie, you know, who came out of the rise of the market economy, merchant culture, industrial revolution, capitalism, all of those kinds of things. So I think that the right tends to have the support of industrial capitalism. The left tends to have the support of digital capitalism. And if you break it down in terms of industries, for example, in the United States, the smaller oil companies tend to support the Republicans the largest oil companies, as well as the green energy industries, they tend to support the Democrats. Or people who own fracking companies tend to support the Republicans, whereas tech companies tend to support the Democrats. Of course, you've got some things that are so large, they've got their hands on everything, like the big banking cartels and all of that, like, say, Chase Manhattan. But 
I think in some ways it's a contest between digital capitalism and industrial capitalism that's being driven by technological change. Also, demographic change is another factor. In the last, I guess, 50 or 60 years, the United States has become more diverse. Now, there's a lot of things that have made that happen. One is immigration. The United States developed a more liberal immigration policy back in the 1960s that has made the United States more diverse demographically in terms of ethnic groups and religions and, and issues like that. Also, there's been a emphasis, a much greater emphasis on cultural integration and institutional integration. We've had, you know, way back in the 60s, we had the civil rights movement. We've had the women's movement. We've had gay rights. We also see generational divides when it comes to some of these things. For instance, Fox News, which is like the flagship conservative network, their average viewer is something like 70 years old. So we have a lot of generational change that's taken place. As far as people who vote for the Democrats, if you look at that from a historical perspective, it tends to be a greater emphasis on traditional outgroups, whereas the Republicans tend to be more traditional in-groups, not necessarily in terms of social class, but in terms of things like race, you know, ethnicity, culture, religion, all of these kinds of things. You know, for instance, the ethnic minorities tend to vote Democrat. You know, conservative whites tend to vote Republican. The most reliable voting blocks that the Democrats have are African-Americans, gay people, single women, and environmentalists, whereas the most reliable voting blocks that the Republicans have are the white evangelical Protestant Christians and the populist, people who identify with populist traditions, which basically means they are, you know, have a generally anti-establishment kind of outlook. They're perhaps sympathetic to protectionist trade policy. You know, they're not neocons. They don't necessarily want to attack every other country. I mean, they may be, have advocate a strong military, but they don't advocate outright expansionist imperialism like the neocons. And they also tend to say, take a more conservative view of immigration, not you know, more skeptical of immigration. You know, they tend to be perhaps more socially conservative, somewhat more religious, more anti-abortion. That would be populism. So populists and evangelicals tend to be the only reliable voting blocks the Republicans have. With the Democrats, it tends to be African-Americans, single women, gays, and environmentalists. So on this theme of realignment, I've noticed another trend, and this is based on my experience doing grassroots lobbying, where I would push for pro-Second Amendment reforms such as constitutional carry, which is actually present now in 25 states and potentially every red state by the end of 2030. And it's a trend that's largely taking place in red states And in a similar vein, you're seeing a lot of this ever-growing number of rural counties adopting Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions, of which the pro-life movement has copied and pasted with regards to its pro-life sanctuaries that are also taking place in a lot of these areas. And it's not just like a red state, blue state thing. It's a lot of like rural counties, especially in blue states above all. And the blue states obviously are pursuing their own policies because you have like sanctuary cities, counties 
and even states that function as like refuges for illegal aliens. Then you have marijuana legalization in a multitude of blue states in complete defiance of federal law. Now, is it just me or are we witnessing a form of policy segregation taking place in the U.S.? Yeah, you're exactly right. What you're seeing is exactly uh, correct. The trend that we've noticed, and social scientists have traced this. For instance, there's a social scientist named Bill Bishop who's been writing about this for about 15 years, about how Americans are gradually self-segregating, I guess would be the term, into lifestyle enclaves or ideologically driven enclaves. That is, conservatives are moving to places that tend to be more conservative and surrounding themselves with other conservatives. Liberals are moving to places that tend to be more liberal and surrounding themselves with other liberals. You know, if you're a conservative in California or New York and New Jersey, you're going to go to Texas or you're going to go to the Carolinas or the Florida or the Midwest. Whereas if you're a, a, a liberal and you're in, say, the Midwest, you're going to go to Portland or San Francisco or New York City or somewhere like that. So you see this process of what Bill Bishop calls the big sort. That is, people are sorting themselves into these ideological and cultural enclaves on, on a local level. And this is happening as much on a localized level as it is on a state level. What you tend to see is that large cities tend to be blue and rural areas and small towns tend to be red. Well, a good example is the state that I live in, which is Virginia. Virginia, I suppose, could be considered a purple state in the sense that it's split right down the middle between reds and blues. But the way it works locally is the blue zones are the northern Virginia areas, which are the suburbs outside of Washington, D.C. That's where you have a lot of federal employees and people who make their living and work in D.C., that's also a very wealthy, affluent area. It has the best economy anywhere in the United States. You also have a lot of college towns in Virginia. You have here in Richmond, you've got Virginia Commonwealth University, which is a massive complex with tens of thousands of students. You have University of Virginia in Charlottesville. You have Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. Those places tend to be blue, the college towns. You also have areas that are majority minority. That is, you're, in Virginia, it's mostly black or where blacks and Hispanics collectively are the majority. Richmond is also like that. You also have that in some of the coastal cities near the Atlantic coast or what we call the Tidewater region of Virginia. You see that in some of the counties along the North Carolina border as well. But then, in addition to these deep blue zones, you also have very deep red zones. You have places in Virginia that are as conservative as anywhere in Texas or Mississippi or somewhere like that. For instance, you have the Lynchburg area, which is the headquarters of the, the Falwell family's televangelist empire. Uh, and you have places in Virginia that are arguably are even more conservative than that. So that's what people are doing all over the United States. You have people who are self-sorting into these ideological enclaves. And that does reflect precisely the kind of localized policy differences that you're describing. 
As you mentioned, in more liberal areas, you have the sanctuary cities where they're saying, basically, we're just not going to go by federal immigration law. They've liberalized drug laws to a large degree. Some of them have elected these so-called progressive prosecutors that are oriented towards criminal justice reform. I've even heard some of them saying things like, well, they're, now they're going to recognize polyamory. I know there's a locality, I think, in Rhode Island that's done, Massachusetts or Rhode Island, that's done that. On the other hand, you have a lot of counties here in Virginia that call themselves Second Amendment sanctuary counties, where they say, well, if the Virginia state government enacts gun control laws, our county is just not going to go by it. And it's not just Virginia. You have this in a lot of different uh, counties all over the United States, and even in certain whole states have, have gone in that direction. And that's true of the immigration sanctuary, too. You have some blue states that have said our state is a sanctuary state, not just our city. And you mentioned, I think, the abortion issue. Even before this recent issue with the Supreme Court this past week, you had some localities saying, well, look, we're going to be pro-life sanctuaries. We don't care what the the law, the Supreme Court says. I think there were some places like that in Texas. On the other hand, we've had other places say they're going to be pro-choice sanctuaries, basically saying if the Supreme Court or the federal government or the state government outlaws abortion, Uh, We're just going to do our own thing. We're going to be a pro-choice sanctuary. And I think over time, we may very well see this being applied to more and more and more issues. You know, you'll have some places that on one hand, you know, do away with compulsory education and say, well, look, we're just going to have homeschools. We're just going to have parochial schools. We're just going to have private schools. You know, we're going to shut down the public school system. Others might go the other direction and say, you know, we're going to have uh, legal prostitution and we're going to let all or most prisoners out of jail. Or, you know, so, I mean, there are all kinds of extremes people could go to here. But I do that does seem to be the way things are evolving. I've noticed that here as well, because I'm in Austin, Texas, and Austin has been a trend center with regards to the enforcement of with like drug enforcement, where the police has deprioritized like the percent uh the amount of like marijuana possession that they'll like prosecute for. And like if it's like under a certain amount, I forget which amount, the police won't even bother. And this has been adopted in like numerous major metro areas across Texas, whether it's Dallas County or even Bejar County, uh San Antonio area, and I think Harris County as well. And to me, this is a overarching trend that I believe is here to stay. And I've written about this too a few times at the Mises Institute. Now, would you say this is a radical development in U.S. politics, or is it really a legacy of the U.S.'s relatively decentralized political system? Because if you look at the early days of the Republic, you did see, like, ironically, a lot of nullification movements and even secessionist movements take place in the North. And is this just another cyclical phase of decentralization taking place in the U.S.? Well, I think it's some of both. I mean, I think some of this stuff is definitely within American traditions in the sense there's always been this tradition of states' rights and localism and things like that. But I also think it's being driven by cultural fragmentation on a wider level that represents things that are going on on an international scale on many levels, because we see somewhat similar things happening in other countries as well. 
One thing that we see increasingly is cultural fragmentation on the level that nobody really even agrees on what it is to even be American. And when the Civil War was going on, you basically had two factions that thought of themselves as Americans, but had different ideas on what it meant to be American. You know, the South said, well, things like slavery, for example, you know, that's always been here. It's part of the tradition. We're defending American tradition. Or states' rights. They would argue in favor of states' rights. Same thing with the North. They would say, well, we're fighting for the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and preserve the American Union. Nowadays, I think you have a a much wider conflict that is existential in nature that's almost like a quasi-religious conflict. For instance, on the right, I think you're dealing with people largely who believe in the American, you know, the traditional American civil religion. Like there was an essay published back in the 1960s by a sociologist of religion named Robert Bella, who argued that there's this traditional American civil religion where it's not really Christianity, but it's Christianity influenced. And it's this idea that America is sort of like God's country. It's, it's almost quasi-deistic, but it has a providentialist element as well. You know, you have people who believe in that and who also believe in some kind of traditional religion simultaneously, whether it's the Protestant evangelicals or the Catholic conservatives or maybe even the Orthodox Jews or the Mormons. And also, they tend to have a political outlook that's within this tradition of Lockean English liberalism. They view themselves as defenders of the Constitution and that kind of stuff. You know, that's the red tribe, the red red team. Then on the other side of the fence, the, the blue tribe or whatever, they tend to think of themselves as more citizen of the world, cosmopolitans. They tend to be more influenced by, say, the, the ideas of the French Revolution Although you had that in some of the early American founders as well, Thomas Paine and Jefferson to some degree, but they view themselves as citizens of the world, cosmopolitans. They think of national patriotism as a type of narrow parochialism. They also are derivatives of, their ideas are derivative of the Enlightenment with an emphasis on things like scientism, reason, progress, human perfectibility. If they are personally religious, it's some kind of progressive religion. It's within this kind of Unitarian or progressive Christianity or social gospel tradition. And as far as their roots in in liberalism, you could say the right are basically Lockean liberals, the left are Rousseauan liberals. And that's really the basis of a lot of these existential conflicts. And then you bring in issues like race. You know, for example, there's the controversy about the 1619 project, where you have people who say, well, you know, America really started in 1619 because that's when the first African slaves came to America. So you'll have some writer like uh, Hannah Nicole Jones who said, hey, for our people, for our side of the story, that's when our history begins in America. So you have increasingly a fragmentation on what it means to be an American, what American history means, what American history even is. And it's rooted in all of these wider existential conflicts that I just described. Pretty crazy stuff all around. And let's shift our focus to even the crazier stuff taking place on the international stage. So Russia, Ukraine, everyone's talking about it. What do you make of this entire conflict and the West's recent efforts to just dump tons of military and economic aid 
on Ukraine in hopes of having Russia bleed out and get bogged down in an Afghanistan 2.0 situation? Yeah, the best way to understand this is to make a comparison to the Afghan war, the Soviet-Afghan war that started in 1979. It was a very similar situation. In, in 1979, the Soviet Union, which was twice the size of Russia as it is today, but the, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan because at the time there was a communist government in Afghanistan that was backed by the Soviet Union. This particular government was faced with uh, terrorist insurgency by Islamic terrorists who were in turn backed by the CIA, as well as by Pakistan and by Saudi Arabia and a lot of other countries in, in the region. So the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. The United States responded with a strategy developed by Zbigniew Brzezinski, which was to arm these Mujahideen insurgents in Afghanistan. And they eventually forced the Russians out after about 10 years of fighting. And that's how we got the Taliban. That's how we got al-Qaeda. That's how we got Osama bin Laden and, and all of these characters. That's where they came from. Something similar is happening in Ukraine today. I mean, Russia's reasons for invading Ukraine are basically that they're concerned about NATO being consistently expanded up to Russia's border. You know, I mean, Russia has always, Russia's foreign policy, going back to the czarist era, this is pre-Putin, this is pre-Soviet Union, going back to the era of the czar, Russia's foreign policy has always been about surrounding itself with as large a buffer zone as possible because Russia doesn't really have any natural defenses. There are a lot of potential invasion routes into Russia. So it's a part of Russia's uh, foreign policy has always been to surround itself with this large buffer zone. And, and that was what the building the Russian empire in part was about. So Russia, I mean, well, the Soviet Union lost about half of its territory. And now Russia sees itself as vulnerable to these external invasion routes. In particular, I think Putin has been concerned about Ukraine actually joining NATO because you do have NATO countries on Russia's border now, the Baltic, some of the Baltic states and, and others. There's talk about adding more. There's talk about adding Moldova or Georgia either to NATO or the European Union. If they were in the European Union, they would be in, in NATO by default because the European Union has a mutual defense agreement. Yeah. It's the political arm of NATO, basically. Yeah, well, it, NATO is the political arm of the United States, yeah. but the European Union overlaps with NATO in terms of membership, where you know, if you're Russia and you attack a EU country, chances are you're attacking a NATO country as well, yeah. which means Articles 4 and 5 kick into action, which means the United States is treaty obligated to defend the countries involved. So that's what's happening there. Russia, I don't, I think, doesn't want it to come to that. Russia, I think, wanted to keep Ukraine out of NATO. In fact, there are some people on the right who are saying, well, if Trump was still president, Putin would not have invaded Ukraine because he'd be afraid to do so because Trump would be tough, you know. I, I think actually it was, I do think Putin was more likely to invade Ukraine since Biden has come into office, but that's because Biden has more pro-NATO policies than Trump. Agreed. Yes. Yeah, Trump could have cared less about NATO. He was more about building, strengthening American alliances with Middle Eastern countries like the uh, 
like Israel and Saudi Arabia, whereas Biden is a NATOist. You know, he's all about maintaining the NATO alliance. And I think when Biden came into office, Trump said, "Okay, under this guy, the, the Ukrainians are likely to join NATO. So we better prevent that from happening. So we better make our move now. So I think how it turns out is going to be dependent on how limited Russia's goals are. If Russia's goals are to simply keep Ukraine out of NATO, perhaps claim the separatist regions in Ukraine, perhaps deter, say, Georgia or Moldova from joining NATO, then they may be successful. If Russia is actually going to try to annex Ukraine in its entirety, that's not going to be successful. That's going to be Russia's Iraq War or Afghanistan Part Two. But I do think, though, that one thing that's been interesting is the way that the uh, world has responded to this. The Western alliance, you know, which is basically the United States, the European Union, and, and your continental European countries, and then allied others in the Pacific, you know, Japan and, and South Korea and Australia and places like that, you know, they've all collectively imposed these sanctions on Russia, but then the rest of the world has refused to go along with that. Asian powers, the BRICS countries, India, Brazil, China, South Africa, all of those have refused to go along with the sanctions. And I think even more interesting is the fact that the Gulf states and Israel have not participated in the sanctions. You know, those are two of America's closest allies, and yet they are Asian countries that have not gone along with the sanctions either. So I do think it's interesting that you've seen a split now between the Middle Eastern countries that are supposedly aligned with the United States and the West. So, yeah, I, I think that this really is the beginning of the end of unipolarity. You know, after the Soviet Union fell apart, the world had basically one unipolar power, and that was the United States, with maybe Europe being sort of like junior partners along with the Pacific Rim countries and you know, a, a network of client states and maybe some countries that could be considered, you know, what amounted to rebellious provinces, you know, like Iraq or, or North Korea or somewhere like that. But I do think that with the invasion of Ukraine and the response in terms of the sanctions and the fact that outside the Western alliance, the rest of the world has refused to go along with the sanctions, I think that marks more or less the end of unipolarity. I agree with your point that you mentioned about Biden, because if you notice, he was actually much more energetic, not only about NATO, but delivering military aid and all sorts of aid to Ukraine prior to this invasion. Compare that to Trump, who was pretty lazy about it. And yeah, he was trying to build up his own anti-Iran balancing coalition in the Middle East. On top of that, making a really slow pivot to East Asia, whereas the Biden administration is behaving in typical neoliberal interventionist fashion in trying to prosecute this proxy war. It's going to be interesting to see how it pans out. One point that I found very interesting that you also mentioned as well is about like Israel, because I've written about this before and I've told people that Israel is the only quote unquote Western nation that has both relatively normal relations with Russia and China. It has not really energetically jumped on sanctions or this condemnation tour that your typical Western nation does whenever some type of controversy emerges in Russia or China, whether it's like domestic or some of the geopolitical moves they make. 
And I do get the impression that as Israel becomes much more like of like, like a religious state and also oriental when it comes to the demographics where it's going to be more Mizrahim Jewish, like more Middle Eastern Jewish. I have the hunch that it's going to look more eastward. It's not going to be as westward focused. And there, you're going to see a lot of geopolitical hedging. And I'd say this is not just exclusive to Israel. I do think countries like Turkey, which has played both sides as well in this conflict, will start to do that and try to navigate these new uncharted waters of multipolarity. I believe this is going to be a feature, not a bug, of this new order. Yeah, I very much agree. Well, if you look at the geography of these Middle Eastern countries, it's not in their interest of any of them to be overly antagonistic towards either the East or the West because they're situated right in the middle. So naturally, Turkey, Israel, Saudi Arabia, they're going to work both ends as, as best they can. You know, they, they try to work the, the Russian and China and Indian angle, and they try to work the European and American angle. Now, Iran is something of a special case because Iran had its revolution in 1979 where they overthrew well, what was an American puppet regime, essentially. So there's a special animus between them and the United States. But these other states, though, I think they, you know, they, they essentially try to work both ends against the middle. I do think you're absolutely right about Israel. Israel is becoming more like a non-Western country. I mean, it's I mean it's Western in terms of its technology and economy and military and stuff like that. It's developed, but it's also becoming it's it, well, it's one of the few countries in the world where the young people are becoming more religious and more racist than their elders. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's not the norm worldwide, but it is there. And I think you're right, that has to do with some of the ethnic and demographic change that you've seen within Israel itself. Increasingly, Israel is populated by Middle Eastern Jews, not by European Jews. You know, the first generation of Zionists tended to be European Jews or Russians. Yeah. That's not as much the case nowadays. And also, there's, a, there's something of a three-way fight brewing in the Middle East you have three different blocks that are squaring off against each other. You've got the the you've got the Saudi Israeli alliance, you know, like the the Gulf states, which are Sunni, which are essentially led by Saudi Arabia. They and Israel have more or less formed an alliance against the Shia bloc, the which is led by Iran. It's not strictly Shia though. The resistance bloc that's led by Iran also includes Christians, it includes Alawites, it includes even some Sunni. For example, it, it includes the Hamas, because uh, now that the Gulf states are aligned with Israel, they've thrown the Palestinians completely under the bus. So Hamas, even though they're Sunni, they're moving towards Iran, you know, Lebanon, some of those places. So you've got the Iranian-led, predominantly Shia resistance bloc, then you've got the Israeli-Sunni alliance, and then you've also got the Turks forming an alliance with the Qataris. I think the, the commonality there is that they both hate Saudi Arabia. The, the yeah, Muslim Turks. Brotherhood. Yeah, well, yeah, I was gonna, just going to say the Muslim Brotherhood has influence in both of those countries. What's interesting about Qatar is that Qatar and Saudi Arabia are the only two countries in the world where Salafi Islam is the official state religion, and yet they hate each other. Because, you know, it's kind of like the rivalry between like a Southern Baptist and an independent Baptist or something. You know, it's uh, 
but they hate each other so much that the Qataris and the Saudis almost went to war at one point. And yep. then the Qataris are now moving into the Turkish orbit. And, and the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, as well as the, the mutual dislike for the Saudis, is the commonality there. So you have this Turkish-Qatari alliance that's brewing along with in opposition to both the Shia alliance and this Israeli-Sunni alliance. So you're, they're gearing up for a three-way fight there. The Middle East is going to be a really messy place in the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one thing about the Turks that's really interesting is that they have some really effective soft power in terms of their Turkish telenovelas and other programming that has like this very neo-Ottoman aesthetic to the point where even in these Arab Gulf states— They've started cracking down on this programming because it, it gives a lot of like the populace like an I like bad ideas about reverting back to like the Ottoman Empire and just like overthrowing their local Arab despots. And it's pretty interesting how uh, Turkey has so many geopolitical angles because it can go like a pan-Sunni route, it could go a neo-Ottoman route, and even it could go a pan-Turkic route that could mess with Russia and China. That country is definitely a country to watch out for in the future, because if they didn't have this inflationary crisis, a lot of the Middle East will be put on notice as they grow stronger. And it's also Turkey's one of like the few countries where their population is still growing at a relatively decent clip. So there's that. And yeah, one, one really curious thing that I've noticed about Israel as well even among their secular population, that they're like above replacement rate, which is pretty pretty bizarre when you compare it to like a lot of the West. There's like a lot of interesting things kicking off in the Middle East now. And as multipolarity becomes a norm, it's gonna it's gonna get pretty unstable in my view. Oh yeah. I mean the Middle East, I think, you know, is as unstable as the Middle East has been in the past. I think it's gonna get even worse you're going to see this massive three-way fight between these blocks that are forming. And yeah, the Gulf states are very unstable. They're essentially medieval fiefdoms. And you have all kinds of people ranging from radical Islamists to pro-Westerners who want to get rid of the regimes that currently rule some of the Gulf states, like particularly in Saudi Arabia. So I think you're going to see a lot of internal instability in a lot of those countries, as well as conflict between them. Big time. Now, for going back to Russia, Ukraine, I've seen a good portion of like right wing populists in the like Tucker Carlson mold and Ron Paul libertarian types and also the gray zone progressives such as Aaron Maté and Max Blumenthal, all of them calling for strict non-intervention. From your view of the political landscape, where have anarchists come down on this conflict? Well, that's been a mixed bag. A lot of the leftist anarchists have fallen for the the anti-Russian line because the thing about that is that the the left has been propagandizing against Russia for so long now that a lot of the left anarchists see the war against Russia as a war against you know fascism. You know, they, like they see Russia as like the new Nazi Germany, the new world headquarters of world fascism, or something like that. So you have anarchists from the left who have a, you know, if not pro-war, at least war sympathetic view. You find some of that among libertarians. You know, they view Putin as a authoritarian dictator. 
and uh, nas- even some national anarchists, you know, who look at it like, well, the pro-Ukrainian struggle is an anti-imperialist struggle. So you don't really have much of an anti-war movement coming out of the anarchist camps, I think, when it comes to this. Now, that doesn't mean all that anarchists are necessarily pro-NATO or anything like that. You know, you have some that are basically have a pox on both their houses perspective, although you do have some anarchists that are taking a pro-NATO line. I even came across one guy who's now calling himself an anarcho-NATOist, if you can believe that. So you have some that have taken that kind of position. But, you know, anarchists are a mixed bag, so you're going to find a, a range of opinions about that, I think, in anarchist circles. It's one of those kinds of things where, from an anarchist perspective, there aren't really any good guys. You know, I mean, Russia is an autocratic, authoritarian regime that's expansionist. The Ukraine is a is a corrupt, you know, right wing reactionary regime that's also aligned with the the neoliberal West. You know, so who are you going to side with in a, in a conflict like that? Yeah, that's a conflict that really sober minds would stay out of altogether. That's what I've advocated for a while. Right. Well, my perspective on it is is similar to. Uh, when Iran and Iraq went to war in the 1980s, there was an, an Israeli official, I forget who, but they asked one of the Israeli officials what he thought of the war between Iran and Iraq. And he said, best of luck to the both of them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I would view the Ukraine-Russian situation. I mean, everybody who knows their international relations knows that of all the countries in the entire northern hemisphere, Ukraine and Russia are considered to be the two most corrupt you know, so you have the two most corrupt countries, you know, in the entire northern hemisphere going to war with each other. You know, it's like, so who are you going to defend? You know, it's, uh, I suppose, from a non-aggression viewpoint, you look at it like, OK, Russia did invade first. You know, and you could say, well, there was a provocation. They, you know, there was a NATO expansion and all that. But Russia did invade first. So you could make it, uh, you know, a non-aggression issue. But then you look at Ukraine, and it's like, well, okay, who are we going to back in, in Ukraine? The Azov Battalion? Are they the, the freedom fighters now? You know, like they're they're like the neo-Nazi Mujahideen, you know, so is that what you're going to uh, put your weight behind? Yeah, that's like further complicated too with the whole conflict in the Donbass, which is like a, basically like a civil war within a broader war too with those Russian separatists. It's just like a mess all around, and yeah, I don't want any part to do with it. But yeah, before we depart, where do you see anarchism going in the near future in terms of political relevancy and also the way it markets itself and tries to grow its overall presence? Well, interestingly, a friend of mine did uh, some research recently showing that the use of internet search engines to find information about anarchism or libertarianism has actually decreased significantly in the last decade or so. So the popularity of anarchism is actually declining. There was a burst of interest in anarchism starting in the late 1990s and early 2000s due to the anti-globalization movement of the time. And there was something of a growth of interest in anarchism throughout the 2000s with things like the anti-Iraq war movement, Occupy Wall Street, from the the other end of the spectrum, the Ron Paul movement. But then it looks like in the 2010s, 
that started to die out and you had a lot of people who were interested in anarchism and libertarianism started going into populism and social democracy. You had a lot of left anarchist types becoming Bernie Sanders fans. You had a lot of anarcho-capitalists becoming Trump fans or something like that. So nowadays it's more populism and social democracy that tend to be the thing rather than anarchism or libertarianism. I think that if there were to be a renewed interest in in anarchism or anti-state philosophies or whatever, probably it's going to come from a lot of people getting really frustrated with the electoral system not producing any results. And I'm starting to see that. I'm starting to see people on the left saying things like, look, you know, we went to the mat for Bernie Sanders. The Democrats cheated him out of the election. You know, we we held our nose and voted for Biden. He hasn't done anything for us. And I see that, I think to a lesser degree, but I I see it on the right as well. I I see people saying, well, look, you know, we elected Trump to do this and he just governed like a normal Republican. So I I think that if disinterest in electoral politics grows or disdain for electoral politics grows, you may see a renewed interest in anarchism. Also fragmentation, the fragmentation that's going on. You know, it's interesting, even though there's a declining interest in anarchism formally, you see more people essentially practicing anarchism or something similar to it by going off and forming their own lifestyle enclaves and and just doing their own thing independently of the government or whatever, you know, direct action or decentralization or whatever. So it seems to be sort of a double-edged sword at point at present. Well, this is a great place to close out, Keith. Thank you so much for coming on. And could you tell my listeners where to follow you and also feel free to plug your content? Yeah, if you want to know more about me, just go to attackthesystem.com. That's the website that I am chief editor of, attackthesystem.com, just like it sounds. From there, you can find links to all the social media that I use, like Facebook and Twitter and MeWe. And you can find links to information about books I've written and a lot of essays, probably hundreds of essays and thousands of blog posts on that website, as well as content by a whole lot of other people as well, as well as just general news and commentary and theory and things like that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Keith. And to all of my fantastic listeners, thank you for your generosity and attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.